Um, so let's just begin talking about like the show itself. Like, let's just talk about like the con. Like, like what is Cloak and Dagger? <laughs> that is the question on everyone's mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Cloak everyone. and Dagger is it's so many different things to us. For those who don't know me, my name is Kennedy Chapel. I'm the Director of Marketing and Communications at Sapper Labs Group. I'm also a producer for Cloak & Dagger. And I'm MJ Benias. I'm a researcher and analyst with Sapper Labs Group, and I'm also the host of Cloak & Dagger. So, um, you know, I think, okay, so, so I'll start at the beginning. I mean, ultimately, when I first came on at Sapper, I was sort of asked if, if I could put together like a podcast for, for about OSINT for mm-hmm. like Sapper Labs and just get this idea out into the world that OSINT exists and all this stuff. And obviously there's a lot of OSINT podcasts out there in the podcast world. Um, and I didn't want to do what everyone else does. I didn't want to make another podcast that just talks about like the tips, the tricks, the tools, how to do investigations. Like there's millions of those and they've been doing it way longer than me. Um, and, and, there's like no point in just repeating the same model that someone else has built. And I and I felt like, I think what we don't have in the OSINT space or what we have in the sort of intelligence gathering investigator space, the stuff that Sapper Labs really dabbles in is sort of the storytelling component. Like what are the tales from the trenches of OSINT that, that exist, whether it's like disinformation research, whether it's investigations into like human trafficking or, or, or child predators, whether it's investigations into extremism, whether it's investigations to terrorism, whatever, like what are those kind of those tales and who are those people who do that work? And can we get those stories out into the world to, to maybe learn from like other investigators can learn from that, but really just be entertained by it as well, which I think is important. I feel like it kind of marries two things. It marries the OSINT world to another lane of podcasting and journalism that's very popular, which is the true crime or the investigative aspect of it all, which is OSINT, but isn't talked about like OSINT, technically. So we're kind of marrying those two things where we have the inside look, which is kind of those tips and tricks and those things that you might get from other shows. But we're doing it with the storytelling narrative to say, and this is how it's applied. This is the real world application of this. This is Cloak and Dagger, a podcast about OSINT, technology, and global conflict. I'm Kennedy Chapel, And I'm MJ Benias. This podcast is powered by Sapper Labs Group. For more, visit www.sapperlabs.com. I wanted people to walk away from the show and say, like, that was a cool story. Um, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed, like, listening to how the interview was woven in to the narrative, how the music was interwoven into the story and how it all kind of matched. And I think one thing I'll say is, is one thing I'll say is I've really grown um, over the last, like over the season of how to weave it better together. You know what I mean? Like I've put together a lot of podcasts. I've worked on documentaries. Like I've worked on a lot of these projects, but you always have a team of people 
who mm-hmm. support you, right? So you may do a portion of the writing, a portion of the editing, a portion of the production, but you still have like editors and writers and producers and and sound designers who are who are working with you and and you're crafting it all together. In our situation, it's really you and me kind of chipping mm-hmm. away at it. Um, and then we have a, a, a you know the help of a researcher, uh, sort of part time, who who can also kind of who does a great job and who jumps in and and provides some great research for us. Um, but it's really like our kind of baby that we've been like coddling and raising and like gently parenting. <laughs> and, and I've noticed 100%. that like the show, I've noticed the show has gotten better. Like even just the quality of the show has improved from like if you listen to episode one compared to let's say episode. 10 right like you notice a sharp increase and just yeah this is way better (laughs) well the show it knows what it is now that's the difference too and like it took when when i am referenced as production support it's usually very little like you are really building out these episodes and i will offer up assistance with like clips and that sort of thing but up until the point that i did my own episode I didn't really realize what the show was. And then after that, I felt like I really intimately understood how to structure it, which then also changes it as a listener. It's more interesting for me to listen to now. And I really, really enjoy it. I always liked it. But in the beginning, I just didn't really know what it was. And now I know what it is. And I love it for what it is. Yeah, it's 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 the situation where if it, the, the parents will kind of understand, right? When you have your first kid, you have zero clue what you're doing. Like you are stumbling your way and you are going to screw them up and you're going to screw it all up. And it's and then, you know, you get used to it. And then <laughs> you you kind of start to take those risks and those weird chances to the point where we start having episodes where, you know, you you come on and play like a, 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 a smarmy con artist trying right. to con some British nobleman out of money. The con artist will say something like, Listen, I have something I need to tell you. It's a secret. Only you can know. I have a cousin. He's a nobleman imprisoned in Spain. And so the mark is brought into this delicious secret. I mean, that's... That's fun. We start taking risks with like creating our own conspiracy theories around uh, a, a Chinese uh, space program. He saw massive balloons that were larger than the cargo ship. And he says there were eight and they were lifting a large round metal object. And it was floating in the sky. We start to to like inter intersect like with more news clips and audio feeds and, and weirder music and stuff like that. Like I feel like we've... Yeah, the baby has kind of grown up a bit and it's developed a personality in a sense. That's what I was going to say. I was like, it's like gentle parenting, but it's also just like having a baby where it's like an amorphous blob. And then all of a sudden one day you're like, oh, and now you have a special interest in like Welsh's fruit snacks and Thomas the Tank Engine. Like who knew? That's right. (laughs) Look at us. Um, Now, Mm -hmm. you mentioned uh, your episode and I want to I want to get into that because I think if I had to sort of pick one of my favorite episodes out of. I think all of them. Yeah. Um, um, you know, one thing I, it reminds me a bit of, of kind of current TV where, where there's always that one episode that doesn't fall into the, 
the the, the others, right? Like they tell a mm. different story from a different perspective. And it's like that, the the rogue episode, right? It's usually like it falls around, you know, in a 10 episode <laughs> season. It's like episode seven. In our case, I think it was episode 11 or 12. But yeah. you did an episode talking about the, the uh, LGBTQ kind of purge that occurred within the Canadian intelligence service and the Canadian law enforcement and, and military uh, branches of the military. Um, I, I'd love to talk about that. Um, because I think it's it's a really unique episode that and, and it's a topic that hasn't really received a lot of airtime anywhere. Yeah, and it was topical at the time because there was a lot happening in the news and culturally with pronouns and trans rights. LGBTQ issues were a huge thing that were being talked about, but kind of marrying that into our world happened accidentally. It wasn't something that we intended to do. And then you had that interview with Arthur Wilczynski. And from there, that episode kind of took off into its own thing. And when you asked me if I'd be willing to take it and go, because I am a lesbian myself and part of the LGBTQ community, it I just kind of was in this headspace of like, I'm going to allow this thing to be whatever it is. If it's the Grey's Anatomy musical episode or like the X-Files episode that's in black and white with Cher, so amazing. The greatest references ever uttered in Cloak and Dagger have just been uttered. I mean, we make a lot of movie references and TV references in the show. That Those two, though, uh, win the day. I'll I've never even watched Grey's Anatomy. I just know that that's a thing. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that was a really interesting episode to do because we built it retroactively. You had done the interview yourself. So I didn't actually have the opportunity to have conversation with, conversation with Arthur in the way that we typically would have to build that narrative out. So it did take um, some strategic effort to bring that story together because his whole interview, a lot of it was just about diversity of voices in the information space. It wasn't necessarily about the purge itself. So much of what he had to say contextually was extremely interesting and important, but it was that story that is actually kind of hard to find a lot of information about. There's one documentary, there's a few podcasts, and it is kind of a huge thing like it's a widespread um event that that touched a lot of lives and i was really grateful to have been able to have the opportunity to do it because it allowed me to invest myself in a, in a portion of my history that i wasn't even aware of not my history but the history of my community that i wasn't even aware of a secret security panel was formed in an effort to remove security threats from civil service when i first joined the government of canada there was something called the purge of LGBT persons uh, that was in effect. From the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, and 80s, well, there was the policy of the government of Canada that if you were a member of the LGBT community, you were investigated and then fired from the government of Canada, in particular from the security services. And it was, it was something that was more common throughout the government until the, I think the, the mid 80s. Uh, it stopped elsewhere other than the national security and intelligence and defense realm. And that continued way up until uh, the 19, uh, 1990s. So when I joined, it would have been impossible for me as an out gay man to work in national security and intelligence. It's interesting when we get into a narrative how there was essentially sort of an open season on members of the LGBTQ community within this field. Um, you know, it was like literally the purge, like in like the movies, right? Like it was, we apply a, a, a complete bullshit test um, that is based on pseudoscience and, and, 
and for all the wrong reasons as well. Like, like we are using bad science for a, a bad reason where, <laughs> where the means and the ends don't justify anything at all. Um, and it was just like based upon stupid social anxiety and fear uh, and, and, and essentially the purposeful kind of like removal of diversity in this field um, is interesting. I think that, that you took upon this episode and were like, we're going to, we're going to do it. And, and if it pisses anyone off, good. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't bother me at all. I've existed as a gay woman specifically on the internet. I've been in podcasting and broadcast journalism for how old am I now? Well, over 10 years. And it it doesn't bother me at all. If that's the audience that is lost, well, so be it. And also people don't generally tune into what they don't want to hear. So there are probably people who just skipped the episode or if they were pissed off. It was a very measured episode. There were things I could have said that we didn't talk about. There was a lot of context to talk about straight white maleness across the board with decision-making when it comes to government and leadership. We did talk about it, but it wasn't scathing because it's not intended to be. It's really just factual. And when you break it down and just say, like, objectively, the facts are, it's a pretty abysmal, terrible thing that happened but you don't even need to sugarcoat it for it to be an abysmal, terrible thing that happened. It wasn't about that. But I didn't have any sort of hesitations about talking about it. Because the first the first step in, in, in encountering exclusion is to acknowledge that bad things happen. And then to, uh, to give a space for the victims of, of, of what happened to tell their stories. So this was an opportunity for these for these people to come in to a top secret environment to talk about their lived experience about losing their security clearance and then losing their jobs, the consequences that that had for them uh, for many, many years. And that now to come back and to be told that this is now a safe space for you. This is someplace where we want to learn from your lived experience. This is a place that has evolved and that is changing uh, is something that has been, I think, really, really empowering for them, but also empowering and, and a real important learning experience for national security. Efforts have been made to offer recognition and restitution. In 2017, Justin Trudeau delivered a historic apology to LGBTQ plus Canadians in the House of Commons. The very thing Canadian officials feared, blackmail of LGBTQ2 employees was happening. But it wasn't at the hand of our adversaries. It was at the hands of our own government. I think the episode is, it's in my like top four or five list of favorite episodes. So y- you made, you made the cut. <laughs> I did it. Um, is that a, is that a nice segue into one of my favorite episodes? Let's do it. Okay. So I was thinking back on, you know, I joined Sapper Labs as the director of communications and a, and a part of that was, hey, we have this podcast and that's something that you have a background in. When I joined, Cloak and Dagger was already conceived of. It was already in production. I actually think maybe the first two episodes were already out or at the very least coming out right at that time. Yeah, probably. And yeah, at the time, I didn't, I felt the world of OSINT and what we were doing as a company to be very kind of overwhelming, a little othering. Like to me, it felt really hard to reach and grasp when I was first immersed in this world. 
And the thing that I appreciated about my favorite episode, which is To Catch a Predator with Griffin Glenn, is that Griffin in this episode talks about what he was doing in his career was OSINT. But up until the point that he became familiar with this organization, he didn't even really know that he was doing OSINT. Similarly to me as a person who's done investigative journalism in the past, I didn't even really know that that's what it was. So it took kind of my two worlds that I was in before and then in now and said, well, like, this is the real world tangible application of what this means. And it's moving because of the context of the episode and and working with children and trying to protect that. And I really just appreciated the sort of objective walk through how you apply these things to something that is just such a a tangible fear in our society. Yeah, no, I, I, Griffin Griffin is also just a wonderful speaker and 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 storyteller, right? Very like much. He, he knows how to bring you into his world. Um, and, and he does it like gently and with um, like grace is like the right word, right? Like, 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 like you said, right. He kind of says like, listen, I was doing work that I had no idea. Like you said, mm-hmm. I didn't know this was OSINT. Um, yeah. And I just kind of eased into it, right? Like he, it's like, as he's telling his story about how he started and then where he ended up, it's not like you're getting shoved into the swimming pool, right? It's like he kind of like dips his toe in, like he lets you dip your toe in first and then you kind of go down the stairs and waddle in nice and easy at your own pace. A friend of mine called me one day and he said, hey, there's there's this group down in Arkansas and they're having a conference next week and they do all that crazy stuff that you do where they, they find people online and things, but they do it for kids, for missing kids. And he said, uh, I thought it'd be something you were interested in, so I just wanted to point it out to you. So. I said, all right, I'll, I'll sign up and, and take a look at it. So I intended to put the conference on one monitor of my computer while I worked the rest of the week and, and I put it up there. And within the first half hour, I was just completely hooked and I couldn't believe that there was this group of people out there doing things and utilizing uh, skills and, and tools and things that I knew how to do very well for the purpose of helping children. I mean, just about... What what I found the most interesting about this this case, and and it's I, I didn't think about it. You know what I mean? Like in his particular storytelling, he he talks about how they were uh, basically looking for children who who went missing because they were essentially kidnapped. Um, it, they sort of like willfully went, but when you're a child and an adult takes you away because they've been grooming That's you not online, consent. this is not yeah, this is kidnapping. <laughs> this is like illegal. Like obviously, the so so you know this girl disappeared, and the way they tracked her down essentially was through like xbox or something right like mm-hmm. through her video game system and through and through social media and the one thing i never really considered was like you know when you think about using osint against an adult it's different because adults have like like addresses and phone numbers and they have accounts with like a whole bunch of things they have houses or apartments like they've got bank accounts like like adults leave this like massive collection of data around them in cyberspace um without even thinking about it right yeah just whether like you existing... want to or not you have utilities yeah. in your home exactly you have right? data online that's just how it yeah. works you pay taxes theoretically mm-hmm. you know like this stuff all exists in the world whereas when it comes to trying to find kids who have gone missing 
they don't like no. the vast majority of kids don't have a social media presence uh, as they get older they do right like kind of the 13 14 year old kind of threshold you know kids start to like you know get instagram accounts or tiktok accounts or i don't i don't know what the young children i don't I, i'm not young um young people have social media apparently and they've got like video game accounts and, and all of this stuff but that's what you're using to to find them i mean that's that for me was like you know what like holy crap i didn't i never thought about that 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 kids you can't just like google kids names and, and be like oh there's their like utility bill or their no tax. it was it was a wild kind of walk through how difficult that would be and when you're investigating uh, cases that involve children, especially, they don't have the same um, information presence that an adult has. You know, if you're in law enforcement and you're looking for me, who is, um, you know, slightly into his middle ages, we'll say, there is databases out there that you can query that are going to have address, history, utilities that I've had, phone numbers, email addresses, all that things. Those things are readily available. Uh, when you're talking about a, a missing 15-year-old child, they don't have that kind of presence. You can't just query a database and get all those those selectors that you would want to work with. Um, so a lot of what I do is try to uncover those things so that we can connect those accounts, uh, lead the police to the right places to submit subpoenas and things like that. And I was wondering to myself, you know, why... Is it that this episode that I enjoyed it so much and enjoy is maybe like a weird word <laughs> given what it was about, but yeah. I did enjoy the episode a lot. A lot of it is to do with Griffin just has a great presence, but I, I gave up listening to true crime, like explicitly like true crime murder cases and things like that a few years ago, because I just don't think it's that great for your brain to constantly ingest that type of <laughs> media. <laughs> um, but Years ago, I was I I did have a true crime podcast, and I remember being interviewed and being asked, "Why do you think people are so interested in this?" And there are studies, and a lot of it has to do with preparedness. People with anxiety in just operating in the world, they feel if they confront it in this format, then there's a sense of preparedness. And I think that that's what I took away from this episode with Griffin, because there are things I never would have considered. You know, the the whole idea of these groomers tell these kids, we'll leave your phone behind because if they leave a trail or they leave a note, then it looks like they left of their own accord. And those are things you just, you know, you might put that together at some point, but until you're explicitly told, you're not really thinking about it in that way. And I walked away from that episode being like, I feel like I understand something now that is valuable. Right. Yeah. That, that, that was, that's actually really, that reminds me of like, I think it was in the show, like this is a direct quote, but it's like, I think it was Griffin who says like these 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 predators essentially utilize like tradecraft and, and spycraft mm -hmm. against kids, right? I have your parents' phone number here. I see that your dad works at XYZ Company. Whoa, yeah, I, I this is the problem. At the top of this episode, Griffin said that his job tracking down child predators was super rewarding because he was able to use his talents with OSINT to make a real difference. That OSINT is a force for good, but with any tool, there's always a way to cause harm. So they're using their own open source intelligence research to, to find ways to uh, blackmail these kids. I mean, this is literal human intelligence level stuff that these predators are using. They find a target and they begin to assess whether they're viable. Like, leave a note saying you're running away 
because then they won't come looking for us, right? Leave right. your phone behind, cancel all of your accounts. You know, you'll open new ones later, right? Like, and and ultimately, they 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 help the child erase themselves from sort of the digital landscape, so they become way more difficult to track. Um, and and the kids are like, I mean, they're what? They're 14, 15, 16. Yeah. I mean, they don't, yeah, right? There's no questioning, uh, really. So for sure, yeah, preparedness is definitely one of those things. I think this was the first now I might be wrong was this the first episode that I had you sort of do some production work on where, where we were like tracking down audio clips out of um like Russia and CNN we were tracking down music and, and stuff like that I think this was probably like your first dip into this world um of cloak and dagger where there was like additional production support because I was swamped um telling the this next story? Yes, I think it was. I have such a clear memory of it, too, because I was in the States at the time and I was sitting outside listening to Russian pop music, trying to find things to insert into the episode. Um, at the point, at, yeah, at that point, I think I'd been immersed a little bit, but this was the first time there was like a true tasking with the show. And also the first time that I was like, what are we doing? What even yeah. is this? <laughs> am I going to be okay? Like, am I allowed? Can I even travel home after this? Like, what is going on? But um, it it is a a fascinating episode, and I listened to and watched a lot of interviews with Russian journalists. And boy, did I! It's impactful. I'll say that it's really terrifying and impactful, and just an, a way, a cultural and way of living that is so foreign to us that I can't even wrap my head around how people live with that level of fear and anxiety. Yeah, so so Marcus Kolga sat down with us to talk about uh, disinformation and and Russian state sponsored disinformation and and the arrest of his friend, which was really the the the, the toughest part to to talk about, I think, for him as well as just to to try and and weave into the larger storyline. But but if you've never heard of Marcus Kolga, he's uh, he's Canadian. He's um, sort of an expert in disinformation out of out of Russia, um, and he does a lot of activist work. Uh, and, and a friend of his who is a, a Russian uh, dissident, uh, basically sort of political dissident, sort of fighting against Vladimir Putin, um, essentially ends up getting arrested. And now he's currently sitting in like a Russian gulag, basically, um, you know, and, and conditions aren't obviously great there. Um, but one thing I, I really uh, wanted to do with this episode was, especially in the beginning of, of the episode, paint a picture of of. Marcus's last day um, having breakfast with his friend because like I, I, I very in the interview very quickly kind of was like you know what when's the last time you saw him like what happened and he tells me the story about how they were um, having breakfast somewhere in DC mm -hmm. at like a French cafe and then Marcus had to get to the airport um, and I'll play the clip right away but Marcus had to get to the airport and they just start like driving and they start talking about like Russian pop music uh, it was this really sunny uh, and remarkably warm uh, uh, February February morning. We sat down and we 
sort of just talked about our families and, you know, what was happening, um, you know, some of the travel that was coming up and some of our, our, our joint plans. Um, you know, we talked about over a croissant and a coffee. You know, we talked about uh, all sorts of you know, Russian culture. We too, I remember that, that we, we spent a lot of time talking about, um, about Russian rock music and uh, how uh, Russian rock musicians at the time were weaving in politics into their music. Uh, bands like DDT and I think I mentioned earlier Yuri Shevchuk, um, Boris Grubetshikov, who, who were all quite critical of, uh, of the, the Putin regime, but were legends. They were like sort of the rolling stones of... So you did the hunting for the Russian pop music. <laughs> I did, but I also watched um, a couple of really long interviews with Vladimir Karmuza, and if I'm saying that correctly, and um, what is his name? Boris Nem Nemtov? Nemtov, Nemtov, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I don't even know how to word it, but basically it was just you know, overwhelming to watch the absolute fortitude of these people just sort of being like, oh, I fully understand that I could be killed. I mean, Vladimir himself was poisoned twice, I think, between 2015 and 2017 before he was arrested in 2022. But yeah, just the, again, the fortitude that it would take to live that life was yeah. absolutely wild, courageous, brave, and something that we will never, never know. Yeah, I can imagine the, the polarizing feeling of, of of finding the archival for this episode because I think literally I said, "Hey, Kennedy, I need one. I need two things. First, I need Russian pop music from mm -hmm. this era, this era, this era, uh, and then I also need you, you to find like archival news clips and interviews and audio recordings of a whole bunch of people who are either currently deceased because of Russian kill squads or have been imprisoned as political prisoners, um, and and it's just like this weird like." The Russian pop music is fun, and then just like this immediate jump into darkness of just these 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 brave individuals who are fighting a fight against sort of this 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 authoritarian state that will do anything to to erase them. And and this mm -hmm. episode goes down this winding path. It gets into like the arrest of Karamurza, but then it weaves into like the assassination of his best friend. And then it weaves into the assassination of a, of a journalist who was um, criticizing the government. And then it ties in Alexander Navalny, who was uh, recently poisoned um, and, and is currently sitting in, in a Russian prison. I mean, it like it weaves through all of these characters um, in like how the Russian state deals with those who try to um, challenge its like the tyranny and its uh, imperial nature and essentially want to establish like democracy in Russia. We're going to charge Vladimir with, it looked like he would be in prison for a short amount of time initially, and then that they would put him on an airplane and, and tell him to get out of the country and just send him back to the US. That clearly wasn't the case. Their plans were quite different. Prominent Russian journalist and political activist Vladimir Karamutsa has been convicted of treason and spreading disinformation about the Russian military. He has been sentenced to 25 years in a Russian labor camp as a result of the conviction. In addition to Karamutsa charging him with, um, with the criticizing the war, they've, they've uh, they charged him with treason. And so he was received a, a sentence uh, for 25 years, um, which is more than most violent criminals in in. Russia get. 
it's it's an episode that definitely was i think our first jump into trying to tell a way more complicated story especially in in this podcast yeah i would i would agree with that and one thing that i think is super challenging about this show that's also really rewarding is having to take quite a large concept something that has a lot of intricacy and details and something that quite honestly you could make into a 16 part series if you wanted to and still not have enough time to cover everything and then distill that down somehow into anything between you know 35 to 57 minutes and this was the first time that I think I watched that happen in a real way and was like oh we are, we're capable of doing this but there's always so much when you watch the production of it and you're involved in the production of it I wish that we could tell these stories, you know, for three episodes because we're scratching yeah. the surface of something. Yeah. And it's just, you just don't have enough time really fundamentally no. to often get into um, the, the the nuance of like every issue. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the, the purpose of the show, I think, is to bring people these stories so that if they I mean, listen, the vast majority of our, our audience are O-centers. I mean, if they want to get into it, they will I'll dig get into, into it. it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. we, we can't do the root canal, but, but you know, like, we can we can look at the teeth and kind of poke around a bit with our little tools and be like, hey, check this out in here. You should look at this. And, oh, look over here. Okay, appointment's done. Whereas, in, you know, our audience can be like, oh, get the drill, right? And, like, they can really right. get into those teeth and start pulling out stuff and, like, oh, this. And I think that's kind of the ultimate goal for me here is to to bring these stories out because i think a lot of people just don't know them um right they want to pursue them further go nuts so the ultimate goal for you is to present a slightly decayed tooth and say to the audience (laughs) if you want to do root canal if you want to do a full implant if you got to take the whole tooth out that's on you that's right yeah listen (laughs) this this tooth is this this tooth is smelly and rotten somebody needs to get into it it just do with it what you will that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I just don't have the time because um, I have to tell a whole bunch of other stories. Um, listen, I want to I want to get into I think our our I think I think this was our mutual favorite um, mm-hmm. because this story was a wild departure from <laughs> the usual <laughs> cloak and dagger. Um, and and it was uh, you myself and uh, a friend of mine named Tim Boucher. We crafted a conspiracy theory. And it was so fun. It was so fun. About a week ago, there was some kind of intelligence leak, and there's all this chatter on some dark web forums and social media about this super secret Chinese space program and some revolutionary new space station they're building. There's the usual conspiracy crap, but people are talking about it. This massive spacecraft being built on some island off the coast of China. And the leak, it contained photos. Tuan told us that after he and the cargo ship left the island, there were a lot of rumors, and these pictures started to circulate. According to the reports, the thing Tuan saw was basically some kind of ark, a ship meant to house thousands of people, to save them if there was some kind of global catastrophe. So I want to get into how we kind of did this, you and I, and, and, and I can fill in for Tim here. Um, but I think initially it was me sending you a message being like, hey, Kennedy, can we make a conspiracy theory for the show and try to trick our audience? And I think your response was just like, hell yes. <laughs> I think that was like, the of course, have yeah. I ever said no to anything? <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, so I want to walk people through how how we essentially did this. Um, and and obviously, you played a vital role in in the crafting of this because we wanted to create a conspiracy theory using AI <clears throat> completely. Um, mm -hmm. So, so what Tim and I did. He's the guest in the show. He's a and he's an expert in sort of AI disinformation. He's an expert in like art of uh, and the utilization of AI to create like false content. Um, he makes disinformation for fun um, is really what what he does. And uh, we we decided that, you know, we started messaging each other on Signal and it was just like, hey, we should create a conspiracy theory. What should we do? And we started throwing ideas around uh, and we just basically asked ChatGPT for advice. Like we want to create a conspiracy theory for a fictional program. And and we started coming up with ideas and we basically asked it to like, you know, using your knowledge, what is good content? And, and at one point, I think it spat out like, oh, you know, China is, is a good kind of place for disinformation research. And then it mentioned... Um, I think it mentioned like UFOs at one point. So we started kind of just to punch those keywords into Google. And this whole story that came out recently back then about the Chinese spy balloon was like an automatic hit for us. Um, so I think in mm -hmm. about 15 minutes, 15 minutes and about 20 signal messages, we had our basic idea of like China spy balloon spaceship. And then we just put that into chat GPT and said, like, write us a basic plot. And ChatGPT spat out this idea that there's an island in the South China Sea mm -hmm. where the government of China is building a large spaceship with the intention to save humanity from global apocalypse. So that if the world was going to end in some way, some catastrophe, the Chinese government would load thousands of people from China onto this spaceship and it would take off as like a space arc. ChatGPT made this all up. So we had the basic plot line. This is where you come in, Kennedy. Mm -hmm. um, I want you to, wh what was like your, what did you do? Well, my experience of this was essentially you said, can we create a conspiracy theory? And I said, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't we? That sounds like the funnest thing in the world. Of course, with the intention of disclosing that it was a conspiracy theory because we are not in the business of spreading myths or disinformation. But You're not. <laughs> speak for yourself, lady. <laughs> um so I got the original chat GPT uh, story that was written. I also, at that same time, was given the photos. That's so, right. So, yes, you had generated the photos ahead of time as well. So I had the album of photos, and then I also had the very basic story. And what the job became was writing this script between these two characters. Um, the, was it a, a worker was on a shipping container? Yeah, no, he was. Yeah, he was a Vietnamese sailor working on a Chinese <laughs> cargo ship that right. operated in the South China Sea. Yeah, and then your your hypothetical contact, right? Yes, and we did use some AI for that, but AI also is not always the best with conversational language. So it was making this conversational, and then from there, sort of the discovery of how do we use AI voices? What do they sound like? Is there a world in which? You know, I might have to voice that. And then we put an AI voice over top of that. Do I want my voice in an AI database? Maybe not. But what we're, what is what is our capability here? Because AI tools can be extremely advanced, but you can also pay a lesser fee to get something that sounds like AI. But we've also had feedback in a way that was really interesting that some people immediately knew that it wasn't real, which being on the inside of it, 
I figured that that was going to be most audiences' reactions, that they knew that this was not real. If it had been real, they would have heard of it already. And then there were plenty of other people who were like, no, I was absolutely duped by this in the beginning, which I thought was fascinating because by the time we landed where we did with the AI voices, I had no concept anymore of what was good or bad. I don't know what your feeling was on that, but I just didn't even know anymore. Yeah, I mean, I remember the script coming back you and I worked back and forth on kind of just editing it down a bit to to mm-hmm. like this kind of this conceivable length that we could tell in the first five minutes of the show, as well as framing it that because because when you sent me the initial script, I started generating the voices based upon but based upon your script. And what I found was um I think initially we had the sailor, he wasn't Vietnamese, he was Chinese, I think in the original version of this. Mm-hmm. But I found that the 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 AI uh, voice tool was way more realistic in Vietnamese than it was in Chinese. So, so when when we had the AI speaking in Chinese and and essentially the, the speaker was was communicating with me in a sense in an interview, it it sounded way too like choppy and clunky. Mm-hmm. When we used Vietnamese, all of a sudden it was like way better. So I remember we pivoted to him. Uh, uh, his name was Tuan. We pivoted Tuan the character to be Vietnamese. Um, and, and I, and what I did is, is we had an interpreter, Tyson, who was the contact who kind of brought the story right. to me. Uh, and, and Tyson was a journalist who, who operated in, in, in Southeast Asia. And, you know, he traveled through China, Vietnam and all these places. And he found the sailor who was telling the story. And, and we, we overlaid like this, this weird, like the, the, the Tuan would speak in Vietnamese and then Tyson would speak over him in the translation. And then I would interject and you could hide a lot of the errors that way in the speech um that that was would were like kind of obvious um yeah yeah the final presentation turned out so well because of the tricky editing of like we covered up a lot of what was going to be blatantly obvious to be a robotic sort of non-human way of speaking Yes. And and you have to remember this was done like not a like not quite a year ago like 6 months ago. This was It was before... done in May. Yeah, and it was before ChatGPT was even able to like create images or use audio. Like this is this was still kind of early days and and we didn't we didn't sign up to any services. So we did Mm-mm. all of this basically for free. So we didn't go out and pay extra money, for example, to get like a better voice uh, tool. We didn't pay extra money for anything. We did this all from scratch. And I think start to finish of actual time from Tim and I uh, communicating, uh, Tim making the images using Midjourney, uh, and again, back in May, uh, Midjourney, May Midjourney, not now Midjourney. Yeah. Um, and, and, and all of like crafting it, whatever. I think we did it in about two hours or so, like total time. If that, like, it was all pretty quick. I mean, that was the point of it was to be quick because AI was so helpful in the journey. Like, it really expedites the process when you're able to use those tools. It was just like the adding the human element, truthfully, that took yeah, that time. It, I think what took the longest was me just like doing the, like, me doing the fake interview and recording that probably took the longest. But that's like for the sure. human element, right? I mean, it was really neat because we use a tool, um, for, for editing this podcast that creates transcripts. So when we're doing it, I was inserting the the voices into the tool and it would offer me like, this is the Vietnamese, this is the English. So even the AI tool built into our, our podcasting stuff that we use 
was also like functioning, <laughs> doing its AI thing, <laughs> translating mm-hmm. text and 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 putting it all together. Um, so it was it was an interesting experience. Um, I remember um, Dave McMahon listening to it uh, and, and he listened to the first five minutes, stopped and then texted me and was like, what is this? <laughs> it's really- oh, I remember that. Yeah, he was like, what, what are you talking about? And then he didn't listen to the part where we say this was all written by AI. And and, and then he did. And he's like, oh, my God, MJ. Like, it was so, but he loved the episode. <laughs> this was so up his alley. Yeah, and there's there's something about a compliment from Dave McMahon that just feels, ooh, that's good. Thanks, Dave. I'm happy Thanks, you liked Dave. it. Yeah, it was a it was one of the more fun episodes to do. It was low stakes in terms of storytelling. Like, we didn't have a really emotionally um, taxing story to tell. We got to have some fun and also see what storytelling with AI looks like because that is slightly the future that we're looking at. I mean, as journalists, we'd like to keep our jobs, but to see how we can use these tools in this other this other way that isn't just like, I need an intro to my podcast. It was really fun. I enjoyed every moment of it. Yeah, it, one thing I, I I appreciate with this episode is Tim, who who was the guest in this episode. He talks about how there will be a future where the AI tools we have will will function in like a mo- multimodal format. So so you'll have one AI tool that will be able to create images, create videos, create audio. It'll do all of it for you in a kind of a one stop shop. One thing I've thought about with this is that um, if you could connect. On, on one side, the social media listening tools, you know, like the, the, the tools that search for hashtags or, or for locations or whatever. Um, and then you just kind of like pull in all of the like what's going on currently where data. And then from that, you sort of like you, you pick the, the more viral or, or pre-viral ones. And then you just hook that up to, let's say, an API. I know MidJourney, they don't have a public API yet. Um, but other tools do. So then you could hook up your your listening side with your production side and just basically automate this and then also have like, you know, uh, let's say you have like a thousand fake accounts or whatever on Twitter or some other social media sites. So you have you hook your listening, you hook your production and you hook your distribution all together automated. And it's funny because ultimately we're already seeing this at ChatGPT. ChatGPT mm-hmm. has released a kind of a multimodal system that you can utilize inside their suite of, of, of just sort of like AI toolkit. And their AI toolkit, like it's just like, here's all the stuff you can do. So, you know, it was very kind of predictive back when we did this in May. Um, but he talks about this idea about using AI to create disinformation at a large scale where creators of, of mis and disinformation, people who want to pollute kind of the information environment, essentially using AI can overwhelm the ability to check facts, mm-hmm. the ability of journalists mm-hmm. to confirm data, the ability of anyone at any given moment during any event could be flooded with thousands and thousands of fake images, of videos, audio from an event. And the journalists and the fact checkers and, and the OSINTers won't be able to necessarily parse through all of the data before it starts to go viral. And then yeah. it kind of overwhelms our our complete understanding of like fact and knowledge itself, right? Where, where the, the fiction is as real as the facts themselves. I think there's, there's the issue of like, just the speed that with which this could happen, it would become impossible for people to fact check or for OSINT investigators to sift through, you know, 10 million images or something, uh, in a short period of time. Um, 
So I think the speed of production is going to vastly outstrip the speed of verification. And I think that's a huge deal. Exactly. In, in our case, Tim generated about 200 images in about 20 minutes. But our story had a lot of fanciful elements to it. Imagine if you just needed to make minor modifications to satellite images, or to cover up a war crime by, by, by tweaking video or image content, or, or to fearmonger a fake looming crisis. Suddenly, those stories and videos and images become much easier to create and seem believable. And if you don't have the skills or training to find the mistakes in the AI-generated content, it may as well be true. And, and these AI tools are only going to get more sophisticated, with fewer mistakes, with fewer tells. Um, it was interesting. I was having a conversation after the episode came out about combating disinformation and how it kind of feels like a fruitless venture. Like, how do you even do it if, if it's going to be generated at this rate where we can't even combat it? And it's a, not a clear answer, but to say critical thinking is a huge part of it alongside critical thinking is just education about how these things actually function, how we built them out. And I look forward to a future of Cloak and Dagger where we talk about that. We explore that more in our content because that is a huge, huge part of, of what we work with and what we see. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, the way that the, like it's, it's very, where I don't know how to word this because it, it's really where we're at. I've read mm -hmm. a lot of reports from whether it's like Canadian intelligence service, whether it's from uh, various other think tanks, whether it's from other governments, um, whether it's from other militaries around the world, like the, the, they, they're talking about AI and, and uh, disinformation, misinformation, malinformation a lot. Like this is a hot topic. And the big question is like, how do we prepare, right? What do we do? Mm -hmm. And there's this weird, it's not everybody. But there's this weird statement that's made at the end of all of these reports that, that I've read so far, where they basically say, we haven't seen, however, like state actors or, or other um, countries, you know, adversaries, whatever, utilize AI in disinformation at scale yet. Mm -hmm. So and then they like they have this weird like comma. Um, and then they say, so it isn't of like grave concern at this moment right and and i'm sitting here being like oh guys really yeah, really like what kind of reactive versus proactive like thinking is this mm -hmm. right i mm -hmm. mean because fundamentally in a year from now this could very well be an issue um but but again the 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 reactive nature i think of a lot of people the reactive nature of not wanting to make a mountain out of a molehill um and to not like be chicken little uh, and, and say like the sky is falling. That's fair, but, but not being prepared for something that's going to happen is, is ridiculous. I mean, that's like saying in like 1985, you know, we shouldn't really prepare yet for the internet as a thing. <laughs> not a lot of people are using the internet in 1985, maybe in 10 years or 20 years, this will be an issue, but right now it's not. And then, you know, 1990. Four happened and everyone had a computer and was online and then what by like the year 2000 the internet is like the thing um it's like there's no there's like the the i find that foresight is not necessarily a strong suit in a lot of these worlds and and i think um where where a lot of people will have the upper hand is is, is looking into who has the foresight 
into AI and its use in information management and information control, because I think that's kind of where things are headed in the near future um, and, and not necessarily the long term. This will this will rear its ugly head way faster than we think. Mm-hmm. And don't you think that the lack of willingness to prepare oftentimes just comes down to not knowing the clear answer, not understanding how you could even begin to combat what we're up against. I, I think so. Um, I think we saw this. I think we saw this with. Um, I think we saw this with like the development of the internet. I think we saw this with with a whole bunch of stuff. Um, you know, this reminds me of a, of the interview we did. Another podcast episode we did with um, uh, Gisela Presda Acha from. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's from Berkeley, and she was talking about uh, the Boogaloo movement. And sh- and we were another talking another great internet. episode. That was a, yeah, that was a wonderful episode. And we were talking about the internet itself and how essentially. I don't think anyone really predicted how the internet could be used to like like rally together extremist views. And especially mm-hmm. when social media became like a big thing where everyone like with the rise of Facebook back in like the early 2000s. I mean, no one really predicted how you could take a whole bunch of people who had extremist views and all of a sudden they'd find each other online and start to like congregate in these like digital worlds and then plan and 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 organize and whatever. And, and a part of that episode, I remember, was finding the interview that David Bowie, who's like a wonderful musician, David Bowie said about the Internet. He was like, this was like in 1999. And, and, and he was asked, like, what do you think the Internet is? Like, don't you think it's just a tool? We're just going to have like a tool that we're going to use. And David Bowie's like, oh, no. Are you a David Bowie fan? Yeah, like Ziggy sure. Stardust. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of old school. David Bowie described the Internet as like an alien life form because we have no idea what we're dealing with such a medium as the internet which absolutely establishes and shows us that we are living in total fragmentation i think the internet i don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg the potential of what the internet is going to do to society both good and bad is unimaginable i think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying it's just a tool though isn't it no, it's not. No, no, it's an alien life form. Um, and it's only going to get crazier. And I mean, he was right. Um, and I think that that's where we are with AI. I think we've unleashed this upon the world. The, the genie mm-hmm. is out of the, 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 the lamp. We can't put him back in. And I think there is anxiety about like now what? And, and taking on this fight is, is, is massive. And I'm not sure if any like group wants to do it. And I think part of it is also just like understanding. I think you have individuals who just don't necessarily understand how AI even works. So how do right. they develop policy or how do they develop measures to counteract it? Um, and and there is no just easy technological solution. There's no like button you can push and AI gets turned off, right? Like it's 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 a a giant octopus of a problem and you have to deal with multiple tentacles at the same time Um, and it's going to take like societal and cultural change to deal with AI and evolve alongside it versus just trying to fight it and trying to put up walls uh, because that's not going to work yeah no it's not going to work at all I think if we go back to what we were talking about with Griffin's episode or just investigations crime all of those things one thing that we can do is to confront things head on to look at how we actually use these tools, how they're being implemented. 
and face that head on by exploring those topics even further, which is something that I know we're interested in doing on Cloak & Dagger. I think so too. I think that's. Uh, I think you're right. Maybe it's something we should explore a little deeper in Cloak and Maybe. Dagger season two. You know, Kennedy, this was really nice um, sitting down and chatting with you. Um, uh, obviously, the audience, you know, needs to know this is our last episode of Cloak and Dagger for season one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are basically taking uh, a couple months, and we are currently in the process of putting together season two and, and crafting uh, the next season of Cloak and Dagger, which will be infinitely different. Um, did you want to kind of fill the audience in of what they can expect for season two, not content wise, but like just stylistically? Sure. So for season two, you're looking at a much different format than how Cloak and Dagger has looked so far. Instead of episodically there being a different topic and a different person, we will be telling one story over the course of eight weeks. I will be there. MJ will continue to be there as analyst and researcher and host. And uh, we're not going to get into the content of season two here today, but we can tell you that when this hiatus is done, we will have that eight-week narrative that we are very excited to share with everybody. And maybe that's all we can say on that right now. I think we'll release a trailer or a teaser within the next, you know, month or two. Uh, so make sure you stay tuned to our channel for for that. But yeah, I think the I think the audience will really find this season two to be really interesting, and uh, it tells a pretty interesting kind of story arc that that we get into. So we're gonna just hope for the best that it all works out, <laughs> which I think it will. And um, obviously, you know, if you are a fan of Cloak and Dagger, you know, obviously feel free to reach out to myself or Kennedy. Feel free to email us. Um, you know, you can find our contact information in the show notes. Um, you know, please subscribe to our our channel. Subscribe to our Twitter, our Instagram, our LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Find us online. Um, we're always looking for cool stories. So, so if you're out there and you have a cool story to tell, um, please do reach out. We can't wait to hear from you. Thanks for listening to this last episode of Cloak and Dagger. I wish you all the best. Good luck out there. Happy hunting. And we'll see you back here next year. 